Hello and welcome to the Serverless Transformation Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. In this week's episode, we have my conversation with Lynn Langett, a CEO, consultant and author in the cloud space. Uh, Hi, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I've mentioned sort of a few titles there at the start. Could you give a bit more information about, you know, what you're working on and what your average day looks like? There is no average day. Every day is <laughs> completely different. And I, I work globally. So it's really just a series of work blocks because I could be working at 2 a.m. my time or I could be working at 9 or 10 or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I work for clients and clients have a lot of different needs. So sometimes they need me to help them select technologies. Sometimes they need me to help them design prototypes. Sometimes they need me to help them build systems, fix systems, help their people to use systems. So the the common denominator is everything I work with is on the public cloud. Okay. And you're working then as a developer, but I also see you writing a lot of content. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, I, I, um, kind of have the, the, the two parallel tracks of uh, teaching and building. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I will be creating custom education content, often for a vertical. So, you know, some aspect of cloud for education, some aspect of cloud for financial uh, services, some aspect of, of uh, cloud for bioinformatics. At other times, I will be teaching to a broad audience. Uh, I have a number of courses on the platform LinkedIn Learning, which was lynda.com. I think it's around mm-hmm. 30 courses now. So I've been making... Yeah, it's, yeah, I've been it's making, a crazy list I was going through earlier. It's, you've covered such a huge, broad spectrum. Yeah, I've been making content there for like five, six years. Um, I also have a lot on my YouTube channel um, as well. I have... I don't really even know how many videos I have. And I, a long time ago, I was a developer relations person at Microsoft, and that's where I really started this education process. And when I left Microsoft in 2011 and launched my consultancy, I just really continued that that technical education aspect. So I would build something, try to learn from the experience, and then share that learning out um, over um, you know multiple platforms. Whether I you know uploaded the code to GitHub or whether I made a screencast or did both. It just is a way that I've continued to work. Sure. And and the unifying aspect to most of this content seems to be it's it's all about cloud. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I really have been, um, up until relatively recently, I lived in Southern California. And so I worked up and down the West Coast. I lived in California for 20, 23 years. And, you know, I was at Microsoft when Azure was launched. Um, so it was really interesting times, you know, and then I left Microsoft and I really got a lot of work on um, AWS, which is, was really a first mover. And, uh, you know, these days I've been working on um, Google Cloud mostly because of the uh, way my clients are, uh, are utilizing the services. But yeah, all cloud all the time. That's me. <laughs> awesome. And I think the first time we met was at the Serverless Computing Conference in London. And I saw you speak about bioinformatics and serverless. Could you talk a bit about that combination? Because it's a really unique combination. And I remember the talk having some really interesting use cases. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, um, well, I, you know, as I, as I started working with cloud, uh, my, my background, although I know how to code and I can code, is more on the data side. 
um, again, way back in the Microsoft days, I did um, data warehousing, I did SQL query optimization. That's kind of how I started. And so, and actually wrote a couple books on SQL Server and aspects of SQL Server. So, you know, a lot of people that work with serverless um, come out of more of the pure coding side. You know, maybe they were in a startup, maybe they did mobile stuff. But my my world is the data side. So the bioinformatics piece uh, is relatively new to my career. Um, how I got into it was personal. A friend of mine got cancer and she was unable to get personalized treatment. And my daughter happened to be um, attending uh, Stanford for that summer. Um, and she, at that time, wanted to be a bioinformatics researcher. And she came home from the classes and she said, Mom, the, the, they're not really using the cloud. And this was, gosh, this was four or five years ago in, in bioinformatics research at the academic level. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You guys are just using your laptops with that amount of data. And so that combined with the fact that, you know, my friend was unable to get in a clinical trial um, and I knew they were there. I just felt that some of the um, more modern ways to use cloud, serverless in particular, would really um, add value to bioinformatics research. And so I just jumped in, like knowing nothing about it. And in the beginning, I actually volunteered um, because I really just didn't have domain knowledge. And sort of surprisingly, that led me to this um, conference in Australia where I ended up presenting something that I had built as a prototype. And while I was there, I met a team of the National Research Group in Australia, which is called the Commonwealth for Scientific and Industrial Research Research Organization, or CSIRO. And, mm -hmm. and they had built a serverless uh, search tool to use for genomic editing. And they wow. built, yeah, it was really cool. They built it because Amazon came out and had done an AWS summit in Sydney, and they they showcased sort of the classic serverless architecture. And this was four years ago, so you know DynamoDB and uh, S3 and Lambda and API Gateway, just sort of the standard thing. And some of the researchers attended that summit, and they said, "Oh, well, we have this problem. We have this burstable search problem." And so they they were able to understand how this could be applied, and they built it for it was called GT scan, or it is called GT scan two. And um, they were one of the first teams in the world to build something serverless. So I knew I was going over to Australia. And I had seen this blog post on Jeff Barr's blog. And I said, um, I want to meet these people. This is I want to be part of this, right? I want to help bioinformatics, not only use cloud, but use it, you know, serverlessly. And so I went to um, talk with them. And they had built the tool, but there was some bottlenecking going on. And uh, this was, you know, really early in serverless when there weren't really any log visualizers or anything. You just basically had to comb through the logs. And so I said, well, you know, have you seen, you know, which Lambda or where the bottleneck is? And they said, well, we can't, there's too many logs, we can't really understand. And so, you know, fortunately for me, Amazon at that time just happened to have released X-Ray. And so I looked like a big hero. Because I showed them X-ray, and of course, the one lambda that was causing the bottleneck came up red on the diagram, and we changed the the application logic and improved the reliability of GT Scan two by eighty percent in one day. And so that was kind of the beginning, and that was you know I met, talked about that in London because that was that was the beginning. I was like, okay, you know, I can help add value in this domain, and I kind of haven't looked back since. Yeah, and that talk, if anyone wants to, to look at it, I'll put it in the show notes because it was really interesting how that architecture worked. Um, and I think we've heard a lot about, you know, healthcare and cloud 
and serverless and healthcare, we, we've heard a bit about, but that's generally been in sort of the the applications, the content delivery. Um, but for, in your mindset, what does the future of serverless and healthcare look like? Uh, what are the new sort of applications and implementations that we're going to see? Well, again, you know, I have this sort of unique approach in the serverless world in, because I come more out of the big data side. And so I often find myself being the only voice at conferences for big data serverless, if you will. Like I've done talks I call serverless SQL um, and, um, you know, serverless data pipelines. And so, you know, while the uh, serverless application um, development is interesting and very relevant, and it's just not an area that I do much in, my um, contributions to bioinformatics is around processing of the genomic data pipelines. And uh, to me, it's sort of like the obvious space for, you know, cloud native serverless, because you have massive amounts of data. So you need the economies of serverless, because you often have burstable processing, where certain steps in the pipeline are maybe more computationally intensive. So, you know, you don't want to have VMs standing up at the most simple level, you want to have more dynamic use of resources. But it's, it's a lot more technically interesting. And frankly, I see it covered a lot less. Um, you know, you see the, um, the GT scan architecture, if you will, the DynamoDB, the S3 buckets, the lambdas, API gate, and the application architecture, like over and over and over. And yes, I know not everybody's developing that way. But to me, that's sort of like a really solved problem, and sure. not super interesting to work on. Whereas in the data pipeline side, it's, it's more uncharted territory. Because, you know, do you use what Google calls the serverless containers? Or do you try to abstract at a higher level? Do you try to make a Lambda style solution work? Do you try to make a high, even higher level serverless solution like Google's BigQuery and get people using SQL who don't know how to use SQL? Because researchers are not, bioinformatics researchers are not taught SQL in school. They're taught R, you know? So, So how, you know, again, it's a, Looking at systems from a complete um, usability and cost, you know, uh, not just cost of service, services, cloud services, but, you know, can the, in my case, researchers actually use these systems that are built um, cloud natively? Um, and it's, it's a really fun and interesting problem space. And yeah, it's definitely also a problem space outside of healthcare. I think a lot of companies are just expecting data lakes for their applications now. And you're talking to them, you think we're talking about servers and we're like, look, your team can focus on business value, the total cost of ownership, but then they go and build a a complex data lake. And then that's something they're going to have to maintain, something they're going to have to keep up and running. And also, as you mentioned, something that the end user needs to know how to actually query and use. And I think some of the the serverless approaches like Athena, like, um, well, it's not serverless, but some of the more cloud-based approaches like Redshift and QuickSight can really allow smaller teams to have data lakes they can actually manage. Um, are you seeing more and more companies start to expect data lakes? And what are the sort of serverless approaches that you've seen be most effective? Well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because, again, this is, this is the world that I've been playing in for, gosh, almost more than 15 years. So really, I think that the, if, you know, if you want to look at the TLDR, it's like, is the data lake truly the new data warehouse? And, and that's sort of good and bad, right? Because I don't know, you're not as old as me, so maybe you don't have the context here, but data warehouses were notoriously um, very expensive. And I'm talking about OLAP cubes and star schemas. I don't know if you even are familiar with these technologies, but 
they, when, when they worked, they were, you know, fantastic and elegant, but they were difficult to set up. They were proprietary technologies. There were different ways of working than relational databases. And, you know, I mean, that was the space I worked in. I built data warehouses that I believe were effective and people actually used. So it's really interesting to me now, given the volumes of data from genomics and other, you know, uh, verticals, um, mm-hmm. notably like uh, industrial IoT, for example, I've done some cases like that, where there's all the event data, and the complexity of processing, which not only is deterministic, but now includes uh, much more machine learning. So probabilistic computing often has a much uh, more computational complexity and adds, you know, the need for more resources into these data heavy pipelines. So you got basically two things going on. So the, the question then becomes, okay, is data like the solution? And, you know, the classic consultant answer you have to have to have in every interview was it depends, right? <laughs> so, so sometimes, you know, for some volumes of data and even some bioinformatics research processes, the correct approach is, you know, MySQL, managed MySQL, because maybe the person working with the data knows SQL and they just really, you know, want to have the familiarity of tables and joins, right? That is honestly less and less the case. Um, however, going completely over to, okay, I'm going to use um, Athena on Parquet. Well, how do I get my files in whatever format they are into compressed Parquet so I make take advantage of all the economies of Athena? You know, right? Like, so that's a big, big question. And then, as you said, what client tools sit on top of that? You know, the thing that is always critical in the world of data is visualization tools Um, and whether you build, buy, customize. um, If the end user can't get meaning from the data, well, first of all, if the end user can't validate the data is correct, that is often overlooked because almost every single data job that I've done, the first sort of bar is, well, we have to clean out all the junk data and all the wrong data. Cause when you have big data, you have garbage data <laughs> that just goes, goes with it. So if the end user can't through whatever you build ascertain what's correct, well, then you have no value. And, and I, and really seriously, I mean, that step is very, very often just assumed or overlooked and that causes a lot of projects to go over budget or fail. Um, so I call it a um, data janitor. <laughs> level zero that's the level zero in, in in data so so you have to build something that does that um and then um then you're going to look at what i call it's it's using the lean men, mentality so a minimum viable report something that goes all the way through to an end user like a minimum viable product so the the, the end user the, the subject matter expert can say yes this is correct and i can this is the, answering the question that i need and then and only then do you scale. And that's the point where you figure out whether you need a data lake. You know, it's really the same sort of set of questions as a data warehouse. It's just the, the options that you have now in the world of serverless are uh, more plentiful. And the phrase you've used a few times uh, has been solved problem. And I think there's a lot of solved problems in all these different aspects. But then it's when you're going to a vertical like healthcare, it's being like, okay, what's a solved problem that works well for the front end sort of visualization aspect for the cloud native sort of processing aspect for the data warehouse or for the data lake. I think it's knowing the right solution to the different problems is it's very much a very end to end full stack sort of mindset you're having here. And as an individual, that's a huge amount of knowledge 
uh, I guess, to keep up to date with. How do you keep up to date with sort of the latest developments uh, in all these different spaces? Well, this always gets a good laugh. I don't have a television. I haven't had a television <laughs> in 20 years. And um, you laugh, but if you don't have a television, you get more hours back in your day. Um, and in those hours, I um, allocate time to learning. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I have uh, probably uh, too much confidence in my ability to learn something. And so uh, I just, and a curiosity. And so, you know, I spend about 20 to 25% of my time. Um, so that's money in a consultant world um, learning. So I do not get paid for 20 to 25% of my work time. Now that comes back to me in a higher billable rate because I have knowledge about the most current technologies. So I see that as investing in my business, but it's a little bit unique way to look at a consultancy. It served me well, but I don't think it's for everybody. Yeah, I can see it being effective. And I think obviously you're a lifetime learner and that really helps. I think it is a lesson that companies can take though, where they might be able to dedicate more time for their teams to be upskilling on these because they'll see the benefit of that investment. But I see very often companies wanting to rush into the next project and not taking that learning time. And you can expect it of some people to spend their personal time upskilling and learning on this, but it's a big commitment. And I think a lot of companies don't see the the payoff in that training education part. Um, do you have any thoughts about sort of what the current barriers to training and education in cloud are? Um, what could be improved? Mm-hmm. I do. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, that... Uh, the uh, amount of services that are available um, uh, being provided by the different cloud vendors has just, you know, grown exponentially. If you look at, for example, the Amazon dashboard, I don't know Mm. how many, 150, 200, I don't know how many services they have. Uh, So, so again, that's usually how I talk to C-levels about training. I just basically take them to the Amazon dashboard and I say, okay, if you, if this was your portfolio of products, if this is what you managed, um, what would you do? And they said, well, I would have to learn about which ones were most important, which ones provided most value. And I said, exactly. How do your people do that? Uh. <laughs> how much, you know, how much time do you allocate? So, so it really comes down to um, helping people that are uh, running businesses understand the velocity of change because, um, you know, the, the amount of change in cloud is, um, can be really good for customers, but the, the cost that, um, is part of getting value out of that change is, uh, having a learning organization. And, you know, I'm not some organizational expert. I'm really more of a practical person than that. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't diminish that work. That's really, really important, but I try to get, get to software that provides value. But, but the point really is, is if you want to use the newest, latest, greatest, and your people don't know how to use it, then you're, you're not. And so, I, again, it may be a little bit cynically, I always like to say to people, you're either going to have to pay up front to have your people educated, or you're going to have to pay in the back when the solution doesn't work or doesn't, is not on time or whatever. And generally, when you pay on the back, um, it's double or three times as much because you've made some costly mistakes. Sure. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'd rather pay in the front. <laughs> so let, let's figure out how to do that. So, so from a really practical point, I try to make some examples of some organizations I've worked with that I think are learning organizations. 
There's a, there's a group I worked with in San Diego. I actually did a contract for 14 months, which is really unusual for me. It's, my contracts are usually super short, like weeks or days even. But I wanted to build something all the way out. And this was, I don't know, three, four years ago. And it was an IoT serverless solution for controlling devices. Um, it was a, like controlling sprinklers for golf courses and stuff like that. And this was, this was the beginning of the, the services that were made available. Um, so beginning of AWS IoT, we actually went out on AWS, but Azure had just come out. And, you know, this organization committed to learning. Um, now, they committed because they had a really expensive mistake, and that's often what drives people. They had a failed uh, internal implementation, and they also had competitive pressure. Usually businesses don't want to spend money unless they, you know, had some pain. But anyway, so what they, what they did is they got some, some people in their, their dev shop that really understood learning, and they made it part of the routine. So an hour a day, um, every morning, they actually had this kind of shocking. They had developers come in at 8 a.m. I said, I, I actually don't believe this will happen, but it did. <laughs> developers aren't known for getting up early. And they would, <laughs> they would have an hour of self-directed learning. And then on, on uh, Fridays from 2 to 5, they would t- have team-based learning. And um, in addition to that, they had budget for people to attend learning events and also speak at them. So it, it turned out to be about 20% of the time. And again, I mean, this is a well-known pattern. You know, Google's 20% time is a well-known pattern that other major tech companies adopt to keep their own employees, um, you know, in the front of technology. So, you know, it's not for free that you get to have effective use of the latest, greatest in, in germane to this conversation, particularly serverless services. You know, you people just don't click on them and know how to use them effectively. You have to become... You have to invest time for your people to learn and what and, and let them learn in the way that's most effective to, to them, whether it's individually, group, reading, building things, combination, uh, so that they can practice and learn and not make mistakes on your on your corporate software that are more expensive than you had hoped. Definitely. And I think in the serverless space as well, it's let them talk about it publicly and share their learnings. Because first of all, there isn't enough sort of content necessarily around all the different sort of challenges to different problems, but also the motivational side of letting somebody develop their skill and their craft during their job, deliver those results for you, and then get recognition externally, I think is really motivating. And I think there's a risk in in companies that have a technical team that they're just seen as a resource. But I think you can use this to, to let you use the latest and greatest, but also just to invest in those people and let them have the recognition of the skill that they're having. Uh, yeah, I mean, completely. You know, I mean, again, this comes out of a lot of the, the organizational stuff. Uh, software is a human endeavor. We're, people who create software uh, products are not resources. They are people. And they have human needs. Human needs to be you know, like you said, to feel good about their work, to feel proud about their work, to, to, to share with others. And seeing um, people who create technical resource, technical solutions as resources is a limiting uh, and potentially um, destructive uh, thought sort of process. Yeah, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the frameworks around technical delivery are very helpful, but they can treat, it, you can risk turning those development teams into resources, and that's the fine balance to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously worked a lot in clouds, a lot in sort of getting people 
into cloud in the education side, a lot in the consulting side and that delivery, and particularly in that vertical of bioinformatics. I think, as you mentioned, it's quite a personal reason why you got involved. And I think a lot of people have a lot of motivation to try and help uh, in that area in any way in any way they could. Are there any interesting sort of open source projects or open source initiatives where people with a technical background could also try and help in those areas? Yeah. Um, one thing, the trend in general that's happening with bioinformatics and uh, has been accelerated by the research around the world to find uh, mitigations and vaccines for COVID is to move genomic information to public repositories. So it allows um, more people to participate in the analysis. So um, this is, you know, a real a positive uh, outcome. Uh, and uh, all the major cloud vendors, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, they have repositories of genomic data, including COVID data, that people can just, you know, do anything they want to for the purposes of, you know, improving knowledge. So that's really uh, something people can start with. Uh, if people want to participate in an existing project, there are a number of projects on uh, Kaggle, which is owned by Google, but it is open source. And it is a platform website, basically, where you can go and join data science teams and you can work on projects uh, in terms of improving the quality of the machine learning um, analysis done with the data. And that includes bioinformatics. Um, in addition to that, I actually took one of my most popular courses on LinkedIn Learning which I call the missing GCP course, uh, Google Cloud Platform Essentials. And I made a version of that on GitHub as an open source course. I call it GCP for bioinformatics. So I took the core learnings around using GCP services and I made all the examples using genomic data and genomic analysis, genomic workloads, so that more people would feel comfortable starting to work in the bioinformatics area. I mean, it's really such an interesting area because there is so much data and it's being driven by the cost of sequencing coming down. So without getting you know too into the weeds here, it's not just the analysis of our DNA. What's the really sort of interesting part, and you have to do a little genomics here, but of course we've got RNA, which then results in the uh, actual expressed proteins in our body. And that is altered, it's called epigenomics, by our environment, you know, so if it's, a, you know, unclean air or smoking or food or whatever, and contributes to diseases, cancer and other diseases. And RNA, of course, is just a single-stranded DNA. And so, like, additional um, area in genomics now that's providing just a huge volume of data is um, RNA single-cell analysis. And... Um, you know, I'm really hoping through uh, these open source resources, including my own, that more technologists come into this field because the potential to improve human health is incredible. Sure. Well, I'll link to all of that in the show notes if anyone wants to check that out. Um, and I'm sure there's quite a big community around that. So I do encourage anyone to check that out. And Kegel has some really great data sets uh, in many different areas. So thanks so much. But we've talked a lot about um, education uh, and, and the content you produce is really helpful. And I do encourage people to check that out. Um, but I know you've also spoken a lot about diversity and inclusion. And I know right now you're based in Minneapolis and there's there's probably a lot of uh, thoughts and reflection on, on that side of things. Could you share your views on education uh, and the inclusion uh, sides of that? Yeah, you know, it's um, um, this, this whole... Uh 
tragic situation in, in my new home, Minneapolis, has caused me to uh, want to want to do even more around um, education for our um, bringing more people into the world of technology. Um, one situation that I've had a lot of success with that I'm trying to figure out how to bring to more people is um, what I call software apprenticeship. Um, I am very frequently asked to be a mentor because I am a, a technical woman and I'm um, in, in my mid-career, so I have a good deal of experience. And you might be surprised to hear that I say no when people ask me to mentor them. And the reason for that is I believe that um, technical people build working solutions for customers. That's the definition of being a technical person. And so I actually wrote a Medium blog post about this. I call it Intern With Me. And I've been doing this this intern uh, informal internship program for, I don't know, a couple of years now. And every person that I've worked with has gone on to um, get a successful full-time technical job. And I've worked with people basically based on their um, background, their, their initiative, their, uh, their ability to communicate. So very non-traditional. I've worked with homemakers. I've worked with people in different parts of the world. I've worked with people with computer science degrees. I've worked with people that look like where we live rather than look like what I see at tech conferences, which does not look like where we live. And I've had success with every person. So I'm trying to figure out whether it's a school, whether it's a online uh, resource, whether uh, we create groups of um, uh, you know, uh, uh, master apprentices or, or, or what we do so that we can replicate this apprenticeship model. And it really, com- it really comes out of more, more traditional what's called trade work in America. I'm not sure how it's called in, in the UK. But, you know, whether you're an electrician or a plumber or whatever, you know, if you go and you, you're, you're, you're building physical infrastructure, you work with someone to learn how to actually make solutions that function. And bringing this to software and making it very inclusive, I, I just fundamentally believe is part of what we need to do to make a better place for all of us. Sure. And I'll link to that blog article. Are there any other resources you suggest to people who might want to try and get involved in that sort of project? Well, one of the things that I like to say is I do this myself. When I want to learn a new technology, I'll go volunteer at a nonprofit. And again, there are a lot of um, areas that have infrastructure uh, damage, you know, not only in my city, but in some other places. So, uh, you know, and these places need websites for donations, they need uh, databases to manage resources. And, you know, some of the work that I've done over the years uh, has not only helped me to build skills and a resume, but has provided valuable software infrastructure to these organizations and connected me to more potential interns. So, you know, basically go out there, find something you care about and think about how software could make that that organization um, more effective. Sure. Um, well, I'll link to all of that. And thank you so much for your time today, Lynn. It was really interesting talking to you. And I think I would encourage everyone to check out your training videos on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and we'll link to everything there. Is there any other place on the internet people should look to get in touch with you? I'm pretty active on Twitter. Sure. All right. Well, I'll drop your handle in the episode description. 
Well, that brings us to the end of our time with Lynn. And thanks again to Lynn for taking the time to speak to us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast, Serverless Transformation, is brought to you by Theodo, a consulting company helping people build digital products primarily with serverless.